0: I am not going to do this unaided, so um, fortunately there's something I prepared a little bit earlier. It's to do with my eyesight, I'm afraid. <laughs> right, but well, today our preach is about amazing righteousness. Now righteousness is a word we often hear and in different contexts, but what does it actually mean? Well, first we have, that's a righteous person, which can be complementary Meaning someone who behaves or lives in a way that is morally good, often respected and held in esteem by society. And then there's the derogatory that's a righteous person, not very good at this, sorry, <laughs> to express disapproval when we think someone is only behaving in this way so that others will admire them or support them. In reality, it's an act, a pretense, all for show. My wife, Wendy, when looking through my preach, said, this sort of self-righteousness is akin to being sanctimonious. Well, I had to look up sanctimonious. And it goes along the lines of, well, the first description said, feeling morally superior. Another said, religious leaders talking about morality but being far from pure and holy. And an example, my sanctimonious aunt always warned us about drinking and gambling, not my aunt. But according to my mother, not my mother, she did those things herself that she told us not to. Well, let's hope the gambling was just a bit of bingo and the drinking an occasional glass of sherry. And then we have righteous indignation, also called righteous anger. It's defined as anger that is primarily motivated by a perception of injustice or another profound moral lapse. It could be something significant, being grievously wronged, or as simple as having your luggage gone through at the airport. And so what about the dictionary? What does it say? Well, it's not very helpful For example, righteousness is a feeling or way of life that is all about doing the right thing. It shows great concern for morals and ethics. It is the quality or state of being correct and justifiable. Some mention the law or constitution. Well, that's a bit of a problem for us in the UK because we do not have a written constitution. And what do all these definitions have in common? They're totally subjective. It also raises the question, who decides what morals, ethics, or rules are good or righteous? If that's difficult enough, they keep on changing. Society evolves. What was right yesterday may not be today and unlikely in the future. Then we have the so-called influencers, media, politicians, businesses, celebrities and so on, all with their own agendas. It is all and entirely secular. It's not consensual and it is subject to the what I believe is right mentality, often removed from facts or reality itself. By contrast, the Christian use of the word righteousness has not changed. It is the same meaning today as it did in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time. But there is a major difference. For Christians, it's about doing what is right in God's eyes, not what our fellow citizens think or what is the current fashion. As we shall explore There's a lot more to it than being just a good person, whatever that means. Righteousness starts as a gift that God gives us to us as our Father through having faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. The Amplified Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. That is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in a right relationship with him by his gracious loving kindness. It may be contentious, but you cannot be righteous without God. And that means you need faith. And to get that, you need to believe in Jesus and the resurrection. Let me pray. Father God, please use me and this time to deliver your message today. Please help us to understand what we must do to be righteous in your eyes. Please open our eyes to your message and let there be something special for each and every one of us. Amen. Right, So, look at the subject, we're going to start with the Old Testament and a little bit about the life of Abraham. Then we're going to move to the New Testament and the parable of the Pharisee and the taxpayer. And then we're going to look at why it is we're not saved through works, but it has to be through faith. And finally, we'll look at some of the key messages and what we can take away. So let's start with the Old Testament and Abraham's story of faithful service. And I'm going to begin in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2 and then 4. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great. So Abraham departed as the Lord has spoken to him. Hebrews eleven eight adds By faith Abraham obeyed. He was called to go out to the place which he would receive as as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Although Abraham didn't know where he was going, he did not question God or hesitated. He trusted and believed that God would guide him and his family. God promised Abraham fame, fruitfulness, and good relationships, by which meant, he and his family would bless the whole world and in due course be blessed themselves it would be beyond anything Abraham could imagine or do himself it was beyond his own capability and unlikely to be successful instead he trusted God and depended day to day on God's guidance and provision if Abraham was going to spurn a nation there was a small problem he was old and had no children. Then the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. I'm going to take up the story again in Genesis 15, starting at verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And next, in the following verse, in verse 6, we get the key point. Abraham believed in the Lord and he credited as righteousness. Righteousness is mentioned 540 times in the Bible. But here in Genesis, this is the first time. Over his life, Abraham was challenged many times. Sometimes he failed and sometimes he sinned. But he repented, had faith, trusted in the Lord and became the father of a nation. Romans 4.13 reminds us that God's promise to Abraham was solely granted through faith. It says, For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Between Abraham's time and that of Jesus, things changed. The Israelites were by all accounts a bolshie and ungrateful lot. Following the exodus from Egypt, the people started to complain ignore the Lord and do their own thing. To counteract this and guide the Jewish nation, God gave Moses a set of laws, the Ten Commandments, known as the Mosaic laws. Over time, they evolved and they changed. Jewish society became less equal. Many of the original provisions in the law for looking after the poor such as the gleaning of corn and debt laws, had gone. Just as today, the law or rules had become weighted in the favour of a privileged few. There was a hierarchy or caste structure. People knew their place, and it was almost impossible for those at the bottom of society to move up. Given the changes that had taken place, It's not surprising that Jesus often spoke on the issue of righteousness. He wanted to make it clear that on our own, we could not be righteous enough to obtain the kingdom of heaven. People needed to know this if they were to understand Jesus' earthly mission, which was to save their sin by sacrificing himself. As usual, Jesus used parables and stories to make his point. I like this from the contemporary English version, which uses the word better rather than righteous. It says, Jesus told a story to some people who thought they were better than others and who looked down on everyone else. So we're going to look at the the, the parable of the Pharisee and the taxpayer. And I'll start by reading in uh, Luke 8 from verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The first question must be, why did Jesus teach this parable and why was it targeted at the Pharisees? Romans ten three 3-4 gives us a clue. It says, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. But Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. This self-justification was a serious matter. Jesus knew that if they thought they could do it themselves, they would not have faith in God. And that meant they could not be saved from their sin. The Pharisees are significant because they were the interpreters of the law. They had evolved into a fundamentalist group known for their strict adherence, not just to Old Testament law, but added a set of man-made rules they had derived to explain the original laws. They thought their own goodness was so impressive that it could not fail to make them acceptable to God they held religiously to the ceremonies and traditions of the law, making a public show of their religiosity. All to be seen by other men, many of whom they despised as being beneath them. The Pharisee in the story is the epitome of one who is self-justifying. His prayer has no elements of confession, does not ask for forgiveness for his sins, Nor is there any word of praise or thanksgiving to God. His prayer is all about himself. Even the thanks he offers is designed to exalt himself and place him above others whom he treats with disdain. Going to the temple to pray with the condition of the heart as it was, he might as well have stayed at home. It was a performance to be seen by others, and such a prayer is not heard by our God. And what about the tax collector? In the Pharisees' eyes, the caste hierarchy, this man was grouped with sinners and outcasts. Only the Samaritans and Gentiles were considered worse. But the tax collector senses his unworthiness, stands at a distance and beats his breast. Well, apart from Tarzan in the jungle, culturally only women in the Middle East would do this. It was an incredibly humiliating gesture of extreme sorrow and anguish and it was in public. The tax collector exhibits precisely what Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means admitting that we've got nothing to offer God to make amends for our sin. We come to God as empty, impoverished, despised, bankrupt, pitiable, desperate beggars. The tax collector recognises sinful condition and seeks the only thing that can bridge the gap between him and God. Have mercy on me, he says to Jesus. Jesus does just that and the tax collector goes away justified and made righteous. The tax collector was not justified by the deeds of the law but by his repentant, humble approach before God. His acknowledgement of sin, his faith in God, was demonstrated by calling upon God's mercy for forgiveness. In concluding the parable, Jesus reminds the audience that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector was humble and repentant and was justified. The Pharisee was not humble, was proud, and was not justified. We're going to move on a few years. Well, you would think that after Jesus put the Pharisees right, corrected and explained the message of salvation, that would be that. But sadly not. By the time we get to the 16th century, it had regressed. Salvation could now be attained by doing good works, whatever it meant. And don't worry about sin as indulgences could be bought to avoid or reduce time in purgatory. Very convenient. The actual definition of indulgences is remission of the temporal punishment in purgatory still due for sins after absolution. I'm not sure that helps a great deal. Indulgences were a big business for the Roman Church. There would be a stall in every town market where people could make their purchases. John Tetzel, the Grand inquis- Inquisitor for Indulgences, famously sold indulgences in Rome to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica. His slogan was As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Uh, Not quite that easy. Now into Martin Luther, a zealous monk. Every three hours in the day and part of the night, he prayed. He exhausted his confessors, sometimes spending six hours at a time cataloguing his sins. You have to wonder just how much mischief can a monk get up to in a monastery. Poor man, no matter what he did, he could not free himself of sin. But he didn't give up, but he meditated on the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.17, which says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, The righteous will live by faith. And here's what Martin Luther says about it. I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives By a gift of God, namely in faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. What a revelation. It's all about sin, forgiveness, and salvation through faith. Since Adam and Eve broke God's covenant in the Garden of Eden, whether big or small, we are all sinners because we cannot be perfect like God. Luther realized that no matter what we do, However much harder we try to live a more moral life, obey the law, or do good work, we will still be sinners in God's eyes. Isaiah 64.6 puts it like this. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, Our sins sweep us away. Luther's eyes had been opened. Justification was by faith alone. No amount of works could save him from his sin. Only God's mercy could do that. Like the tax collector earlier, it meant that if he believed and humbled himself before God, confessing his sins, then he would be saved. The Apostle Paul reinforces this point about faith versus works in Romans 4, 1-5 by referring back to the time of Abraham, starting with verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God what does the scripture say abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness now the one who work now the one who works wages are not credited as a gift but an obligation however to the one who does not work but trusts god who justifies the ungodly their faith is credited as righteousness Well, just how clear could that be? And it's a real lesson for all of us and often a misconception about righteousness. Yes, we should do good works. It may make you a righteous person in other people's eyes. But on its own, it does not take away your sins. Make you a Christian or righteous in God's eyes. So let's look at some of the key messages I don't think any one of group of people got into more confrontations with Jesus than the Pharisees. But have you ever stopped and asked why? I don't think it was personal, but their beliefs and teachings were wrong. And Jesus needed to put that right. And here are some of the issues that Jesus raised. First one, we cannot become righteous on our own the Pharisees had a misplaced hope on self-effort rather than God's grace. They thought being pious and doing good work was enough. Interesting, as they looked down on anyone else outside their class and certainly did not help the poor in any meaningful way. We simply can't do this on our own. Ephesians tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Yes, please do good works. Please help others, but rather because of your faith you choose in Christ, but not as a substitute. The Pharisees focused on rules rather than relationships with God. God has always meant for the laws he gave to be a way to the right relationship with him, not hard rules to follow regardless. Our God is a personal one. He encourages us to have a personal re- relationship with him. His commandments are given to draw us near to him, not to to drive us away. We need to watch out for modern day legalism, the focus on rules, regulation, and compliance. These are man-made, not of God, and a distraction. And the final point here about them is that we have this club syndrome, exclusive, exclusivity of a few showing devout behavior. The Pharisees thought because of their religious behaviour that they were more favoured by God. They considered themselves special, members of an exclusive club, an elite with special privileges. Nothing could be more wrong. God loves all the world and not just pious believers. In the Christian faith, there is no caste system. God values equality amongst all believers because no matter how good you think you are, you will sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On a personal level, we need to be on our guard for the Pharisee within. A couple of thoughts. Let's not compare ourselves with others playing the game of goodness. I'm not bad compared to that or I go more regularly than you do to church. Avoid boasting of your achievements when you pray to God and be thoughtful of the needs of those less able or in need. Rome taught justification by faith and works, especially works. But we know the gospel of Christ is that of justification by faith alone. Righteousness is amazing and let's see why as we conclude. So we're going to look at some of the takeaways from the, um, what we've been talking about. The overriding point is that we need to recognize that no matter what we do, we cannot escape the fact that we will sin. For some particularly, many non-Christians, this may not matter. But for us, it needs to. We are fortunate, as we have been given a way out, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. So what is it we have to do to receive this get-out-of-free jail card? First, it's a gift. It's freely given, and it's at no charge. It's there simply for the asking. Matthew 7, verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Second, it's available to anyone and everyone. It's not about class, position, or status, or your background, whether you've been good or bad. Righteousness can only come from God, and his eyes, we are all equal. Paul says in Galatians 3: There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and no female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Third, you can't do it on your own. Anyone, by which I mean any citizen from any nation and religion, can do good deeds and become a righteous person, just like the Pharisees, but it does not make you a Christian. Doing good deeds is simply not enough. You need to believe in God to make you righteous by his Son, Jesus Christ. Fourth, be humble. You can't justify yourself, so humble yourself like the tax collector And put your faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice. If you do so, then you will be praised by God. And if you are humble, showing showing grace to others should come naturally. Fifth, be brave. The tax collector in public beat his chest and declared his sin. Martin Luther fought the Roman church. And stood strong in the face of all forms of opposition. God's true righteousness, his support is for all, is all you need to stand firm for him. Sixth and final point is check the word. The Pharisees and the Roman church had distorted, changed and misinterpreted the word of God. We need to be wary of false teachers. Instead, be like, Luke, like Luther. Check the Bible. It is the genuine word of God. We need to put God at the center of everything we do. A simple prayer of repentance is of more value than fancy words made to look like prayer. Express your, emo- your emotions about your weaknesses to the Lord in good faith. So that you can overcome them. God is fully aware of the real attitude of our hearts. No matter how much we think we can hide it from other people or him. And that's it. But finally, in prayer. In researching this talk, I found this prayer from Luther. In fact, it was a part of a 20-page dissertation. on on the Reformation, which I thought was only a couple of pages, but anyway. And the prayer goes like this, so the final word is Luther's. Oh, that we might willingly be emptied, that we might be filled with thee. Oh, that I might willingly be weak, that my strength may dwell in me. Gladly a sinner who knows himself to be such, that thou mayest be justified in me. Gladly a fool that thou mayest be my wisdom. Gladly unrighteous that thou mayest be my righteousness. Amen.